This podcast is produced by Discipleship.org, championing Jesus' way of disciple-making. For a 10% discount on the National Disciple-Making Forum this October in Nashville, Tennessee, register at Discipleship.org and use the promotional code PODCAST. Producing this episode, I'm Chad Harrington. When Randy Pope was in high school, an older guy asked him if he wanted to be discipled. He said yes, and after meeting together for a year, the man asked Randy if he wanted to do it again the next year. This time, if Randy was going to do it, he had to disciple someone else too. Randy said yes, and then asked Bobby Cargo, among others, if he wanted to join a discipleship group. And so they started meeting together on a regular basis. So I called Bobby up. He now goes by Bob. And I asked him what he remembers from that group that Randy led 50 years ago. My name is Bob Cargo, and I serve as the director of church planting uh, at Randy's Church, Perimeter Church, and serve also on the teaching team or preaching team at Perimeter Church. The part of the story that Randy loves to share is that uh, I was in his first discipleship group when he was, I guess, a high school student and I was a middle school student. The, it was not my first discipleship group to be in. I'd been in uh, groups of a couple of different crusade staff, but they would leave um, during the summers when they were not in our town. They would, uh, at the peak, probably after they got the ministry rolling, they would leave uh, some students for the summer under the care of older students who were hanging around, and I'm sure that was a a double win for them and really developed the older students who began a discipleship experience in a pretty non-threatening environment to disciple somebody three or four years younger than them. And so that was my first, uh, when Rainey talks about his first discipleship group, it was during one of those summers uh, when the crusade staff were out of town. And uh, I would assume because we already had a connection, uh, I ended up in Randy's group. And very frankly, the only thing I remember about being in Randy's group is we would go to his house and we would sit on the floor in his bedroom. And that was like so different than Sunday school, you know, uh, because we're not sitting in chairs and we're sitting on the floor. And that was like, wow, this is really cool. We're just sitting on the floor talking about Christian stuff. The only other thing I remember about it was that we did memory verses. And one of those verses was Philippians 4, 6. And I misquoted it and left out the term, with thanksgiving. <laughs> and he corrected me on that. And uh, I was a little embarrassed that I got corrected because I misquoted it, but I've never forgotten the spiritual truth that <laughs> a key to having peace with God in prayer is to have an attitude of thankfulness. But very frankly, I don't remember of the other guys who were in it. I don't remember anything, anything else we studied or talked about. That is the totality of what I remember. Randy and I talked about the first discipleship group that he led the one that Bobby was in. Here's Randy's perspective on how God helped him make disciples of Jesus from an early age. It started with one simple question and an invitation to enter into a life-on-life journey of disciple-making. Back when I was a young student, uh, I had a a man enter into my life experience, probably, I'm going to say 10 years older than me. He came into my life experience as a young adult, and he said, would you like to be discipled? And I had just come to faith. I was a brand new Christian. He said, would you like to be discipled? And I said, I have no clue what you're talking about. But yes, I like you. I'm attracted to who you are in the faith, and whatever you can do to help me, I'd like it. So he said, fine, let's go. And so I started meeting with him with a handful of other students my age, 
and he began to pour his life into us and invest in us spiritually. As a result of that, he said, would you like to do that again next year? I said, I would, and I did. I started doing it again the second year. And by this time, I'm just getting into early high school years, my second year of high school or whatever, and uh, he said to me, now you have to this year give it away to someone else. And I said, me? Man, I'm just young of the faith. I'm young personally. I don't, how could I do that? He said, there's always people younger in the faith than you. You go find some younger men of faith, uh, boys of faith, and, and, and invest in them. So I went to a good friend of mine, brother, who was two doors down from me. His brother was in high school, my grade, and his younger brother, four years younger, his name was Bobby, and I said, Bobby, would you like to be discipled? And he said, what's that? I said, don't worry about that. Just get you a few of your buddies that want to be helped spiritually. So he brought a little group of guys to me, and I began to invest in them. That was my first year. By the way, Bobby is now known as Bob, and Bob has been on our teaching team at Perimeter for probably 20 years. I don't know how many years now. It's been 15, 20 years. But uh, been on our staff for many years. But uh, that was the birth. Now, since that time, I'm now, this this uh, couple of months now, I'll kick off my 50th consecutive year of investing in a handful of men. And I found that just something every year I've done since that time. You're listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. We bring you stories of disciple makers who are multiplying disciples of Jesus. Today's episode is Randy Pope's story of disciple making with Bob Cargo and John Odding. As you heard, Randy learned to make disciples on a grassroots level from a young age, and as he was faithful to the process, his ministry multiplied. Eventually, Randy founded Life on Life Ministries out of Perimeter Church in Atlanta, Georgia, where he still pastors today. Through Life on Life Ministries, he and his team share with others how to make disciples in the local church context. Thus, they named it Life on Life Ministries because discipleship happens in the context of your actual life within a local community of believers. Here's Randy on how his personal ministry grew into what has become an international ministry. Well, actually, the story of Life on Life as an organization began uh, a handful of years ago when our elders had noticed that we'd had, I think, 360-some-odd churches contact us through the year and asking time to meet with us to hear about what we were doing and how we did it and so forth, and mostly in terms of discipleship. And so uh, one night in the elders' meeting, they said, are, are we trying to keep this secret or what? And I said, well, obviously not. We'd love to give it away. And they said, well, why don't we more be more intentional about doing that? And we actually uh, tweaked our mission statement of our church in such a way as to say that we wanted to begin exporting Life and Life Missional Discipleship, based on the interest of people who were hearing about it and coming to find out more about it. And now what does Life on Life Ministries do exactly for those churches who reach out? We believe in a formula for developing churches and people, and it is to think big, start small, go deep. And so we try to do the same in how we prepare people. What we do is just what we do in people's lives in the local church, In our training, we do clinics. We bring in about 25 churches at a time, and uh, we do a three-day clinic Thursday night through Saturday so that it will be truly a life-on-life training. Uh, Every week, we have a coaching of each church with a coach here in Atlanta 
we'll have a phone call, with it be a Skype call, that uh, they do actually about an hour uh, coaching during that week, week to week to week, until they come back for clinic number two. Clinic number two, we pick up where we left off in clinic one. We train them further. And uh, then each month, for a month, uh, one time a month, we'll do a, we'll do a Skype coaching for that team. Uh, during that six months, they come back to clinic number three, and clinic number three is the finality of the whole training, and we kind of wrap it up with some things that we think are critically important. And then at that point, they're able to launch, and they, in fact, have already launched a few groups in their church by that time. It's been seated well enough that now they can begin to go deep and therefore really be able to expand in a big way. At this point, we're we're in about 10 countries. We started doing this internationally. Uh, the demand for what we're doing is just beyond. Uh, I'll be in Manila this next month. I'll be in Kuala Lumpur. Uh, where There's just so much interest all over the world. Everybody's saying, how do you get people to develop to maturity and faith in the life of church? And so we talk about it as bringing the discipleship back to the local church, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. But but uh, as a result of that, what we do in every location with now starting centers around the country where we're doing the same thing as we're doing overseas, and that is to go through the year, find the lead churches that are really catching it well, and then we'll say, would you come back and do it again next year? But we would like for you to be in training, and we'll be coaching you to prepare you to be the leadership. So then that second year... Our people will do all of the coaching and training. They'll watch, observe, and then we will be coaching them all along those three days, kind of behind the scenes. In a sense, we're in the driver's seat, they're in the passenger seat. Then they'll come back the third year, and they'll actually begin. They'll do all the speaking, all the leading, all the coaching. They do everything, and we're just in the passenger seat. We're coaching them along the way, supporting them until the next year, they start doing all the training, and we've already developed that full cycle in about seven or eight countries, and it's it's really phenomenal how they're carrying on. And now these leaders are going into different countries and putting on clinics doing the very same thing. If you look at the at the genesis of the whole of what we're trying to accomplish, we're trying to see each individual life go to a place that we call mature and equipped as a follower of Christ. But we have a very specific description of who is the mature and equipped follower of Christ. And so the goal is to take them from where they are in their faith, uh, or maybe their lack of faith, bring them to faith, and then take them from that point to a place that we would call mature and equipped. And we have that very specifically designated so that we know very intentionally where we're trying to take that person. Now, the story of how that really impacted our church is that about seven or eight years into the life of Perimeter, we were one of the faster-growing churches in the 70s and early 80s, and uh, there was a lot of attention that was being uh, given to Perimeter, uh, a book written, 10 of the most innovative churches in America, and one of them was Perimeter, and there were articles being written and so forth. And, and I was away on a study and prayer leave for a week, and I had a pad in my lap, and I'm thinking just about how do we make the perimeter, uh, you know, as strong a church as possible. And I'm sitting there just thinking and praying, and something is unsettled in my heart. It's like I'm I'm thinking something's wrong. And 
I sat there and I said, I think the problem is that we're not as strong a church as we're being credited to be. And I didn't even know why. I just sensed something was wrong with the attention that we were getting. And so I began to ask myself, you know, what is the, what's the goal of what we're trying to accomplish? And I had this picture in my mind of me being an archer. And why that, I don't know. But I pictured myself with a bow and arrow, and I pull, draw it all the way back. I look away from a big wall across the room, and I let it fly. And I see where it sticks in the wall, and I grab up a pen, and I draw a, a circle. I'm just picturing me doing this, drawing a big target around where the arrow hit, and then celebrating what a good archer I was. I said, I'd be foolish to do that. Mm. And it hit me. I said, I think that's what I and most churches are doing. What we're doing is that we are shooting arrows, and we're being applauded for how far we're shooting arrows, but not how well we're hitting targets. And so I sat there and said, you know, I, I sat for hours, and I said, Lord, what is the target? What is the target? And at first, I thought, well, we know first that the target is people's lives. It's not numbers of people. It's not money. It's not buildings. So I said, okay, I know it's in the lives of people, but what what is that target specifically? At first, I thought, well, it's it's people growing in commitment to Jesus and knowledge of the Word of God. And I thought, well, that's happening to our people in a really big way, so something's still missing. And then the, the words mature and equipped came to mind. And I said, now that may be the challenge, because in order to be mature and equipped, you've got to be growing in commitment to Jesus' knowledge of the Word. So I understand that. But if you reverse it, flip it around... I think you could be growing in commitment to Jesus and even knowledge of the Word, but not be mature and certainly not equipped. And so I said, why don't we take the bigger umbrella and start thinking about our people being mature and equipped? That led me to sit there for an hour or two or three, sitting there saying, okay, what is the description of a mature and equipped follower, which is one I just quoted in part to you. And uh, I started bullet pointing just what are the characteristics of a mature and equipped follower. And when I came to that list, I looked at it and I said, now, what percentage of people in our church meet that description? And though we had a number of them, it was a small minority. It wasn't even a, a large minority. And I said, that's the problem. And so I began to think of all the churches that I was interacting with in New around the country. I couldn't think of any church that was doing church differently than we were uh, we were one of the, you know, first uh, adopters or adopters of the small group ministry. We were known as nationally as one of the stronger small group ministry churches, and we we're preaching depths of the, you know, the gospel and gospel-centered. And thinking, what do you do differently? And so, in the midst of all of that, I could not come to the answer of how do we get of our people in that uh, direction. So I came back to our elders and I shared the story, and they said, "Well, your job number one." is to find the answer to that question, how do we get there? And they said, we'll give you as much resource time, you go find the answer. And so no one seemed to have any insights. I'm talking to a handful of our staff, I took them away, I said, we're going to just keep biting into this until we get something. And uh, somebody said, I got an idea how we can find that out. Why don't we take the names of the people in our church that are, in our opinions, mature and equipped, and let's put the names on the board, and then let's go to those people, find out how they got there, and see if there's some commonality to the pathway. So as we were putting up dozens and dozens of names up on the board, somebody stopped, and one of the staff said, hey, I see something very unusual here. 
said, what's that? I said, well, look at the uh, names of the men. And I looked at him, and I said, what are you talking about? He said, look how many of those men's names are men who have been in your, referring to me, your small group, Randy. And I pushed back a little bit, and I said, no, wait. I've had, I've had more theological training than most of our leaders. I've had more small group experience. I'm thinking all of that. And I knew it was not because I was taking the cream of the crop, because the people that were in my discipleship group were people I was leading to the faith. Uh, they were you know, pagan when I met them, and they were people who are, were in moral messes, relational messes, and now they're becoming literally the elders and leadership of our church. And uh, so they said, uh, well, maybe, maybe not, Randy, but here's the question. Are you doing anything differently in your group than we're doing in our groups? And I said, absolutely for sure. And they looked at me kind of startled. So what do you mean? I said, well, I'm, I'm not really enamored with small groups in terms of spiritual formation. They're good for other things, but not spiritual formation. And so I do something different with my guys in my group. And they said, what do you do differently? And I came out with five things that I had not really, I just kind of came off my head. I said, I do this, 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 and this. And those five things literally became the five elements that we now include. That is literally what we do with the people in our groups. And I realized this is what this man had, had done with me early on. And this is what I started doing just because it was done with me. I turned around and did it with others. And this is what was happening, the impact of life. And so with that, we decided we're taking that into the DNA of our church. And with that, that's what happened over the next handful of years. Man, we started small, and uh, we went deep, and boy, it just spread out wide. And uh, that's, that's what happened. And then people started coming to us saying, man, show us how to do those five things in the lives of our people. And that's what our training actually is all about. We'll hear what those five things are when we come back. We're taking a break from the story to hear more about how you can grow as a disciple maker by joining the national conversation that's going on right now. For starters, join the discipleship.org National Forum for Disciple Making at Long Hollow Baptist Church in Nashville, Tennessee, this October 6th and 7th. This is a two-day conference specifically for you. If you're a leader of any type in the church, paid or unpaid, volunteer or on staff, pastors and laypersons alike will learn best practices for disciple-making today. It's on a Thursday and a Friday so that you can travel from just about anywhere in the country and still make it back for Sunday. This year's theme for the forum is called Culture Shift, Back to Jesus' Way of Disciple-Making. This conference is the first of its kind because 10 disciple-making organizations will all be in one place at the same time. Here's Randy on why he's coming to the National Disciple-Making Forum. Well, that's my heartbeat. That's what I want to see. I want to see a synergy come along where there's you know, power in, in the influence of, of groups that are kind of helping each other. That's how we grow and learn. So uh, with that, I thought, man, we want to be a part of something like that, obviously, because that's what we're about, and we love to see others that are all about it. That's why we do what we do, is to make discipleship-focused churches. And so let's go where we can band together and, and work and make it happen all the, all the stronger. Register for the National Disciple-Making Forum at discipleship.org. At the conference, you'll hear how Life on Life Ministries makes disciples. Randy mentioned the five things that he teaches in his discipleship groups. Are you ready for them? The five things that Randy focuses on when he makes disciples are truth, equipping, accountability, mission, and supplication. Together, they make the acronym TEAMS. 
You can pick up on these throughout this whole episode, but if you want to learn more about them or about Life on Life Ministries, go to lifeonlife.org. And now back to the story. Randy said that he's been discipling guys consistently for the last 50 years. That's five decades. So I asked him, What's the greatest challenge in discipleship that that you face? You know, you've, you've got kind of this, this one to three year, I call it program for lack of a better word, but, you know, plan. So within that, within your disciple making efforts, what's the greatest challenge that you face on a regular basis? I'd say the first and greatest challenge is keeping it missional, keeping guys you know, solidly pursuing missional life. I've seen through the years, if I feed and feed and feed, and they come and they supposedly grow, 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 no mission, just learning and applying and keeping it to things of God's Word. If you do that, no mission. I watch the next year, they just kind of dribble out. But if they get rooted in missional living, now they just, they're, they're lifetime self-feeders, they just keep going after, you know, the things of God. So same is true in my life. If I'm not being missional in the way I live, um, and everybody's different in how they're going to be affected missionally, but if they're not constantly thinking, I am out trying to to shake it up with the lost world, trying to meet people who need faith and find a, find a way to love them, care for them, uh, serve them, share the story with them of, of the gospel, and get them to understand faith, if they're not doing that uh, in, a, in a very um, uh, specific way that they've, they've kind of learned tools and figure out how they best can do it, if they're not doing that, then I don't expect great progress in the next years after they leave the group. So how do you keep it missional? Like, it's one thing to say, okay, now go, like, share your faith. Um, or it's it's one thing to do it in your own personal life as far as reaching out, but like, how do you disciple people into being missional in their everyday life? Yeah. Well, one thing, you start with little, tiny, tiny baby steps every week. It's another baby step. And then you repeat that baby step the next year and the next year until it becomes ingrained in them. I watch guys that kind of pop out in their second or third year missionally, and uh, they're. But it's a constant uh, dribble, dribble, dribble. We're just constantly giving them uh, little trainings, tools that we have in our in our. I'll call it curriculum of what we do every week. There is a little bite that everyone has to take, and if I see them not taking that bite, then they may not be able to go through the next year. And I say, you know, you're not you're not doing as we're asking you to do, therefore, should we even continue this? Another thing that's very important is that I invite them to bring their most pagan, obnoxious, non-Christian friend, and I say, you bring your friend and have lunch with me. Let's get some way, you tell them I'm your life coach, you tell them I'm your pastor, if it scares them away too bad, but just you bring them to lunch, and let's watch what happens, and you learn by watching me. That's the best way that I teach these guys how to be missional. And when you're sitting down with people that don't know the Lord and you just met them for the first time, but you know them through your disciple, but what do you do? Like, what do you even do? Like, have you led them to Christ there on the spot or do you just kind of like have a conversation around the Lord? What do you do? Well, first of all, I've never led anybody to Christ at that time of lunch ever. And I, 
I will predict I never will, ever. I don't, I don't even try to. Um, but what I do, because they're bringing secularistic, humanistic people, and they're not ready to, they're not prepared at all. And so I have tools, and we train in tools. That uh, I'm, a, I'm a big believer that people have to have three things to be missional. They have to have the right mindset, which we can build in our guys over the three years. The mindset meaning I'm committed to it, I believe in it, I've got to do it, people perish. I've got to be a, an instrument of God. I'm an ambassador, uh, you know, all that. So, got mindset set. But people with the right mindset, virtually all of them, I'm noticing, don't have tools. They don't have the right tools. Therefore, they don't really know where to begin, what to say, what to do. So, I want to train them in the use of tools. And then, all you got to do is then find their workshop. Are they more aligned to the workplace, to at home, to the, where they play? social club, where are they going to have the biggest impact, and then you have them focus in that direction. For instance, uh, I was uh, invited I invited one of my men to, all of our guys to do it, one of them came to me and said, I know who God wants me to have but I, at lunch, but I, I don't want to invite him. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it's my future brother-in-law. My sister is engaged to him, and my family nor I like him, and we don't think he's, you know, they were just so, he said, we don't even like each other. And I said, well, why don't you go after him? See if you can get him. He said, I don't know. It wouldn't be good if I did. Well, he came to me and he said, hey, he's, he's going to have lunch with us. I don't know why or how, but he said he's going to have lunch with us. And so I said, great. He said, no, Randy, it will not be good. Trust me. So I get there. The two of them are already at the table at, lunch, at the restaurant. And I sit across from uh, John. And I said, uh, well, John, I don't know much of you. I've been told a little bit by your future brother-in-law here, but... Uh, you know, and I asked him a, a question, I remember the question, and he looked up at me and he said, let me tell you, can we get this straight right now? Just, just get this. I am a Baptist, therefore I am a Christian, right? He said, are we good with that now? Are we okay? <laughs> now, I looked over at my friend, and he's looking at me like, oh, gosh, what are we doing here? I told you so, you know. Well, I knew I had the right tool. And it's the same tool that I knew that I would be training him in. But I just said, John, let me do this. I won't go any further, but can I show you a quick little diagram? And he goes, yeah, go ahead. I mean, he had no interest. So I said, okay. I gave him a little diagram. It just took a few minutes. And right as soon as I finish, he's saying, so you don't mind meeting with me for three weeks to walk through this? I would, I would really or for four weeks, you don't mind meeting with me, I would really appreciate you doing this. Thank you so much. And so we say goodbye if we finish our meal, and we're no more in our cars than I get a phone call from the guy in my group, and he is he is crying like a baby. And I said, what's the matter? He said, my sister just called, and she said, what happened? John just called me, and he is excited about meeting with the preacher for Four weeks. What happened? My name is John Otting. So I met Randy Pope a little over six years ago. Now, he mentioned that uh, that time you went to the lunch when you first met him, and he showed you a diagram, uh, and then you ended up meeting with him a few times after that. What happened that day? It was my brother-in-law who set up the lunch appointment with Randy Pope. And at that point, Randy Pope, I thought it was going to be a typical sales pitch. And he kind of started going down the route of explaining, you know, do you have a, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And 
everything else. And I said, well, I could probably just stop you right there. I said, I've been in church for a long time, and uh, I'm comfortable where I'm at in my faith. And he said, well, I tell you what, if you give me a couple weeks to kind of sit down and go through with you, I'd like to go through, uh, I believe it was either, I lose track of time, it was either three or four handbooks in the book of John. And ultimately, to be honest with you, after sitting with him and seeing his diagram and just how comfortable he is, um, it was just amazing the connection that was made right away, the utmost trust, and basically just it had me start to um, question my faith and the fact that, you know, have, was I truly saved? What did, what did he say or do that made you question whether you were saved or not? Well, I think ultimately it's just getting back to just to the root of the matter of, you know, because I I kind of grew up in the church family and because I've been going to church since I was seven years old and I was saved at a very young age that, um, you know, I'd been out of the church for a while and the fact that, you know, going to college, I hadn't really found a, a church home, if you will. And, um, you know, at that point he kind of shared his story of, of his upbringing and his family. And um, he said, you know, John, there are certain points in your life where you have to come back down to it and figure out that while you may have been saved at a young age, was that due to just being in the church? Was that due to, uh, you know, just wanting to impress your family? Or is it, was that where you do truly have a relationship with Christ? So I think there was, you know, again, and, and I still feel this way, that ultimately I knew that if I had perished, I knew where I was going. But I think ultimately because, you know, at a certain point in my life where I had gone left when I probably should have gone right, um, I needed to probably get out and rededicate my life to Christ. What was special about what Randy did that day to you? Because it sounds like you were like, well, I'm, I'm getting ready for this sales pitch kind of like come to Jesus moment. But it sounds like it was different. What exactly was special to you about that? Well, I think he just said he has a very special gift of breaking down his message in a very simplistic manner um, and the fact of also getting you comfortable. And it's not a sales pitch. I mean, clearly it's genuine and that ultimately he's not there to, to press anything on you. I mean, clearly he's a, uh, a wonderful disciple of Christ and he's doing his best just to get out and pass the message. So I think it's just, it really boiled down for me just being a, a truly genuine individual. And was it awkward for you at all that uh, your brother-in-law invited you to this lunch and then like this pastor kind of springs these heavy questions on you? Well, I mean, it was a little, I mean, I'll be honest with you. Yeah, it was a little awkward at first because what, what was kind of going on, let me set the background for you is, is Ryan, my brother-in-law was in one of his life groups and uh, me and Ryan did not really have a, a, strong relationship really there was no relationship whatsoever but of course i'm dating his daughter i mean his sister and um you know at that time ryan's like hey you know i'm going through this life group with randy pope you know he's a phenomenal guy i got some great great guys in my life group i'd love to kind of introduce you to him and i'm kind of like uh you know whatever i mean that's fine so, of course, I go have lunch with him, and right out of the gate, I thought it was going to be a sales pitch. But ultimately, like I said, it, it didn't take very long. I don't know, maybe 30 minutes into into the lunch. But I realized that his, his message is different. And again, his message is different in the fact that he is just truly a very gifted individual 
to deliver uh, God's message, and in in a way to get you very comfortable, to get you relaxed, and to essentially just let down the guard and open up. But no, I mean to say uh, I went into that not uncomfortable would be uh, a far stretch. I mean, you know, as you can imagine, you've you've never met an individual before. You're with your future brother-in-law who, you know, I mean, at that point, I didn't know where our relationship was going to go. Um, but clearly, it was it was one of those points in your life where you can point back, and again, I lose track of some of the details, but ultimately, I, if, if I had to put a, if I did a life journey, and I have given my testimony multiple times, I always bring that up in my life journey of, of meeting with Randy Pope, and clearly my life was uh, changed for the better. Because more importantly, it made me focus back on rededicating my life to Christ. For Randy, tools for disciple-making are really important. They offer a simple and repeatable method. During my conversation with Randy, he reflected on his experience with John Odding and the guy he was discipling. They talked over the phone to debrief what happened at lunch that day. Here's how the conversation went between them that day on the phone. And so I, I turned to my friend as we are talking on the phone. I said, I want to ask you a question. Did you hear anything, see anything that I did that you thought was really amazing? Wow, how did he do that? And my friend's response was this. He said, no, anybody could do what you just did. Well, I used a tool. And then what I do is I turn and I train them to use the tool. They've seen me use it. They see how easy it is to use, and they go, hey, I can do that. Then it just begins to multiply. So we have... We have training we call Express Your Faith, and everybody in discipleship is required to go through Express Your Faith, a Friday and Saturday night training that we do that augments their discipleship group, and that's where they get their tools. If you'll remember Bob Cargo, whom used to go by Bobby, the guy at the beginning of Randy's story, he shared with me great insights into Randy's life as a disciple maker, and I'll share those with you now. Just for a little context, Bob is now on staff at Perimeter Church with Randy, He was Randy's disciple, but now he's a ministry partner with Randy and has been for a while. Although Bob may not have remembered all the details of exactly what Randy taught him 50 years ago, except how important Thanksgiving and prayer is, Randy's life as a disciple maker has made a profound impact on him. It has been the way he's lived his life outside that time period that has impacted Bob the most. Randy is leaving a legacy that Bob thinks will affect many more in the years to come. And that's in addition to what Life on Life Ministries is doing as a whole. So we'll end this episode with three things that Bob has learned from Randy Pope's life that he hopes will continue into the next generation of disciple makers. Bob, I wanted to ask you, as you look back, what lessons that you've learned from Randy's teaching and from his life of making disciples really stands out to you the most as something that you want to pass along to the next generation? I'd say there would be probably three categories of that. One would be just that who you are as a follower of Jesus is a lot more important than what you do as a minister. I think a significant part of Randy's uh, legacy is, very frankly, that uh, by God, by the grace of God, he kept first things first, you know. And uh, in a time when we hear so many outstanding ministers who let issues of... of uh, a lack of godly character or infidelity or other kinds of impropriety or just out-and-out pride and arrogance ruin their ministries. Uh, Randy has kept his eyes on the Lord and and, uh, kept his feet on the ground, and uh, I think at certain times has 
turned down a lot of, especially when his kids were young, turned down opportunities to burn the candle at both ends to keep first things first. So I think that's a huge part of his legacy. I think secondly is that the building block of pastoral ministry and church ministry is what happens eyeball to eyeball, person to person, man to man, or, or woman to woman. And in terms of a pastor's ministry, it, uh, you know, it starts with, can I lead somebody to faith in Christ, and can I personally lead them to maturity in Christ? So it's it's the importance of the individual and investing in individuals. Uh, I, I think that also segues into uh, his ministry that uh, multiplies leaders. Uh, Perimeter's ministry is a leadership engine. It attracts leaders, it produces leaders, and uh, I think that goes back to Randy's style of leadership uh, that people are, are given responsibility, authority, and opportunity, and it's a leadership culture and a lot of important leadership insights on how the organization is, re- is led and how it's run. And uh, yeah, I think the, the third category actually would be with um, some distinctives about church philosophy of ministry. These connect with the second category, but they become more systemic rather than just individual. And that is things like that the role of the pastor is to be a leader equipper of God's people. He's not supposed to be the one out doing it all himself, trying to shepherd every person, uh, et cetera. And uh, along with that mindset of multiplying leaders, uh, there's also the mindset of multiplying churches. And, uh, you know, anytime you do that kind of thing, you have to be a lot more concerned about the results than who gets credit for the results. Uh, because you're going to be equipping people to do things in ministry that uh, they'll never trace it back to who that leader was who equipped those people to do those things. They just know that this guy ministered to them, shared Christ, discipled them, whatever. They don't know, uh, you know, the father or grandfather or great-grandfather figure in this story, Uh, but that person is back there. And uh, so uh, Randy's legacy is a lot bigger than people who will know his name, which is also true of a couple of Randy's mentors, Jim Baird and Frank Barker. Uh, they had an influence on me as well, and they have with Randy, and uh, there are a lot more people that have been, been impacted by their lives and who know their names as well. And I think that's a, a sign of uh, insightful leadership and godly leadership. It's something that's not trying to build a star, but just trying to build a ministry that glorifies Christ. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast by discipleship.org. Learn how you can grow as a disciple maker by visiting discipleship.org. Make sure to register and join us this October for the National Disciple Makers Forum in Nashville, Tennessee.